Hi, I'm Rifka. And I'm Ida. Welcome to the From the Inside Out podcast. We're entrepreneurs and friends who love connecting through meaningful conversations. It all started in an Uber, where we were both so inspired by each other's life experiences. It was then and there that we decided to create this platform because we believe in the power of growth, self-awareness, and connection through sharing our experiences. Our goal is to bring you insights, wisdom from the people who inspire us, and interviews with some of our world's greatest thinkers, leaders, and everyday heroes. We invite you to join us as we create positive change in mind, body, and soul from the inside out. Meet Michal Oshman, who works at TikTok Europe as head of company culture, diversity, and inclusion, and formerly held the position of international leadership and team development at Facebook. Michal has trained and coached hundreds of tech leaders throughout her career to help them hone in on their leadership skills. She has recently been coined the Jewish Grenade Round, and after our conversation with her, we understand why. Michal is married with four beautiful children. She grew up in Israel, served as officer in the Israel Defense Forces, and has three university degrees in psychodynamic and systemic thinking, sociology, and anthropology. In her new best-selling book, What Would You Do If You Weren't Afraid?, Michal shares her journey and some key lessons she learned about life, love, mental health, relationships, and healing. From the inside out. Enjoy. Hi. Happy Hello. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. And thank you. You're so organized. Oh, my gosh. Like, women are the best, or you are the best. Well, it's, we are. That's so cute. That's, it's actually funny that you say that. Uh, I was just telling Ida, I do feel organized in a lot of ways, but some days, like today was one of those days where I felt very scattered. Ida said, that's what happens when you're a busy woman. You have a lot going on, so I should be grateful for that. But I, we thought we're talking for, to the perfect person who's busy. <laughs> it's, it's so special to have you with us today. We're so excited to share your story and share how you've grown throughout your life um, with our listeners. So welcome. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners who are not yet familiar with you and share a little bit about your background with us? Thank you, Rivka and Ida. It's so great to be here today. And I have the pleasure of also seeing your faces, uh, which is amazing during this call. Um, and it's Sunday and feeling positive. So, you know, just fantastic speaking with you today. So who am I? My name is Michal Oshman. And uh, I think one of the reasons we're speaking today is uh, because I published a book called, my first book called, What Would You Do If You Weren't Afraid? And this book is a very personal share of my own journey. I'm a mother. Of, I'm a 45-year-old woman. I am was born in Israel and I've been living in London and England for about 17, 18 years. And on the surface, I had a fantastic life. I And not just on the surface, I had so much to celebrate, uh, a healthy life, uh, physically at least, and parents that looked after me and then met my husband and I grew in so many ways. But what no one knew was what was going on in, inside my own mind and heart and how I was suffering for years from anxiety and, and fear. And uh, I didn't realize that that's not the way we should live. I thought that because of different things that happened to me in my life, which I share in the book around my childhood and other experiences, I thought it was normal to live um, a fearless, um, quite anxious life. And I got to a point at the age of 39, 38, after trying everything, uh, medication and therapy and revisiting childhood experiences. And the only place I didn't look or one of the places that I never considered looking for healing or help was um, was the Jewish wisdom. I had no idea that in Judaism, there's a psychology that helps. Uh, and I shouldn't say psychology because that's a, a new term, but there is a wisdom that helps heal the heart and soul. And I thank God I discovered it at the age of 38. Um, I'm on a journey since then for the last seven years. And I had to share my findings and my discovery with other people that are potentially going through similar um, life challenges. It's interesting that you said that you thought it was normal to experience anxiety as a kid, you know, like you felt like that's kind of the way we are. So how has that changed for you now? What role does fear play in your life today? So fear was, was life, right? And I think for some of it, it was quite um, 
I, I would say maybe objective reasons. I was raised by my grandparents and my parents and they were Holocaust survivors. And I can still hear my grandmother screaming at night from the fear of the Nazis coming to take me. So, you know, some of it was really much from what I, in a way, was wired through almost my DNA through through my parents and, and grandparents. Um, and it didn't help that I lived in Israel and it was a, a difficult time in many periods of my life. But um, I think, you know, there's, there's, there's different fears and different anxieties. And I just want to say from the very beginning, I'm not an expert in mental health. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm, I'm only, a, you know, a woman that has been on a journey and wants to share. Um, some of our fears are needed and essential. They help us survive, right? Like if, you know, we're on the street and the car comes rushing kind of towards us, we, we must jump and avoid. But, but living a life, which is the life that I lived expecting every moment to be that car crash moment, that is not a way that I would like to live my life. And one of the reasons that I lived with a lot of fear and anxiety is because I thought I was in full control of everything. And I was trying to be in control, even of stuff like aging. You know, I thought I could control aging. I thought I can control no one leaving me ever. I thought I couldn't control my kids, nothing happening to them. And, and not being in control caused more fear and anxiety. It's like, right, this kind of vicious cycle. And when I actually realized that um, there's a bigger master in this world than myself, and I can do the best that I can, but some of the things are, of course, out of my control, and I can only do my best in my marriage as a parent, as a daughter to my parents, I felt a sense of um, a bit of release and less control. It was like a huge burden that was on me for, as I said, 38 years. Some of it is just um, went away and I could be a bit more of the positive person that was hiding in me all those years. I just never saw that girl, now woman. Wow. It's very moving for us that you, you found a way to get through or get past your anxiety through Jewish wisdom, through Hasidus. But it happens to be this morning. There's a new book, but it's an old book, but a new version. Of, it's called Shar Bitachan, The Gateway to Trust. And um, I actually should say, I will send you the book <laughs> because I think you're really going to enjoy it and, and find, find uh, trust in Hashem through it, even though I can tell from your book that you already do, that there's a difference between faith and trust. Like we can have faith in Hashem, but when we actually have trust and believe that what he is doing is for the best and for the good. It, it lets go of anxiety. I trust in God that this is what's happening for a reason and really put your trust in that. You know, it's meant to be. Oh, um, I just want to listen to you now. Can we stop asking? It's just leading me to, to you because in your book, you found your healing through through God and through the teachings of Tanya. And you, you speak of the idea in Tanya of Kripa, a shell, layers that cover our soul. And you write about the flame within your shell. What was the shell and what was the flame for you in your own experience? This is such a deep concept. And, uh, you know, I, I'm just touching the surface, I guess, uh, literally, you know, Klippa, the shell in, in the book. And I'm so early on my own journey of learning but what I could say, or what I want to say, is that I think I focused most of my life on, on the shell, on the everyday things, on the stuff, on the material, on the, and I had no idea that I actually had a soul, which is a huge, I know for maybe for, for, for girls and people that have been brought up in a more spiritual way, it's like, yeah, how did you not know that? I had no idea. I really had no idea. I was brought up with parents that, or a household with, it was all about the facts. It was all about, if you can't, if there's no evidence, there's no way that it is. And, you know, how can you, um, so I just didn't think, I didn't, I didn't know that there was a, as, as a soul. And during my many years in therapy, I guess I focused mainly on the shell, the events, the, the stuff that happened or, 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 you know, a lot of the things that I was wearing above on myself, uh, sometimes even physically. And when I discovered that I have a soul that could never be, you know, touched or ruined or destroyed, regardless of the things that I had seen or experienced, it gave me so much hope. And the other thing I want to say, I wasn't desperate 
to convince myself. Of I'm a very um, challenging person. I, challenging, I challenge others and I also challenge myself. So you can imagine when I started reading Tanya or other script, I challenged the script as well. You know, I came to this with eyes open, mature woman, asking questions about life and just the answers that I found were they were life-changing. So the discovery that there is a soul and it wants to grow and maybe my anxiety and my fear are signals from my soul that, hey, listen, you're not doing, you're not helping me grow the way I want. Um, and this isn't about growth, about getting more degrees or looking a bit better or losing a bit of weight, right? That's not the signals of growth. It's a different growth that I've never, ever considered. It's a, it's an internal spiritual growth. Um, and that was part of the discovery. Yeah. There you said something beautiful about the soul. And it's so true that it, it's really been untainted from our past experiences and, and it's the essence of who we are and that you you gave yourself this opportunity to tap into that. And you saw that all those external things of your past, what you've been through, all those layers, the clipper, that your soul hasn't been tainted and that you started to work on yourself from there. That's really, really, really beautiful. And I think, yeah. Yeah. And I think it makes, it makes sense that, you know, I mean, conventional wisdom will say, well, seeing is believing, right? If you could see something, it's so much easier to believe it. And much of the physical world and the scientific world is stuff that we can see. So once we can let go of control, which is, that's really what it's all about is seeing is being able to control. Like we have controlled experiments, you know, once we can let go of control and we submit to something, uh, you know, something higher than ourselves, which is essentially our soul connection. That's when we feel more free, you mm -hmm. know, to let go of the things that we can't control. Um, there's one thing that shows up a lot in our conversations and on our platform, which is, you know, self-care and what self-care I think could, is conventionally known as today is like going to the spa or like going to get a nice facial. Um, but then you talk about soul care. Has the notion of self-care, has it changed for you over time? Like what does self-care mean to you? Hmm. Great question. And as you know, from the book, I like keeping things real. So of course I love a massage and a facial. Like I don't want to, like these are, and it's fine because, you know, our body, we, I care about the body and I care about, you know, giving it some, you know, joy, you know, in different ways. But I think personally, most of my life, I guess I did kind of the self-care only on the cover of, you know, who I, who I was, which was, also body and by the way and mainly body sorry and, and and by the way it actually turned out to be quite negative at some point because I at some point and sorry to use a very psychological term I think at some point because I didn't know what to do by myself I was so anxious I was so worried I was so trying to be in control um at some point it actually pivoted to a bit of um a slight obsession, I guess, guess with, with, with controlling aging. And I remember um, there was this point when I went and I got all sorts of anti-aging treatment, treatments, which, by the way, I have no issues with if it's done from a healthy and balanced way. But I think right. I was, because I didn't know what to do with myself and, and, and I, again, didn't know what was going on inside me, um, there was a period when I you know, injected all, well, not I, I went to a doctor, uh, you know, and injected things to, you know, to, to my face and really did like too much of anti-aging treatments. And, and then I didn't look good and I looked weird and it wasn't me. So I was even more stuck in myself, even looking in a, in a, in a, in a, in a way that didn't make me feel, you know, proud of, of who I am, but it was a little bit out of my control. And one of the things that make me feel even now, to be honest, really vulnerable because I didn't share this story in the book, is that yes, I was a 38-year-old woman with a, with 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 children and a big job, and I, I I found myself dealing with things that probably weren't very good for me, but I just couldn't help myself. And I think so many of us we get so angry with ourselves and we feel guilty. Why am I caring about this, or why am I trying to fix myself in every every way possible? But you know what? I guess we were wired to go through these challenges to go even a bit deeper beyond, right. the, skin, beyond the skin. So um, I'm glad I realized that underneath the skin and underneath all of those organs, you know, there is some, there, something there that nothing has been injected into it apart from potential. That's really right. beautiful. That is beautiful. And also when you are taking yourself, care of yourself physically, when your intention, like if your intention is to 
bring light to the world or to be a better mother or you know it's going to make you feel better as a person like if you know it's not just for the superficial act itself but because you want to deepen or grow in some way or give to the world in some way and you know it's going to make you feel better that is also good Rivka, just on that because you just think i just you're making me smile now so i remember one of my first shiri one of my first classes uh with within chabad community i asked the rabbi um so listen is, is it okay to put makeup and to dress beautifully now that i have this soul like doesn't even matter what i look like and, and i was like oh my gosh like my husband's gonna get this really new version of me um, then, you know but then, but then this you know fantastic rabbi who's just so down to earth he's like what does it make you feel when you put makeup and makeup on and dress and he said it makes me feel good i feel like you know, I'm, I'm, I feel good. I feel, and he's like, yes, you should feel good. So it was so beautiful. And that's one of the reasons I really like Lubavitch is like, you can be so many things at once. You don't have to cut a part of you. You can, sorry to sound very specific, but like wear that red lipstick and oven in the morning and do other things and do chinuch and do Yiddishkeit, and you're still the same one person and one soul. And I, I think that's beautiful. What you're saying is, and it reminds me of how we, we've always been told, we're not physical beings in a spiritual um, in a spiritual world or body. We're spiritual beings in a physical world. So everything is spiritual right. in that, like even putting on makeup or, you know, if doing the, the external self-care stuff, that in essence is spiritual for us. It's like we're seeing it the other way around. Right. The body is in a way more important than the soul. Because our bodies are brought down to this world to elevate the world. Great. So I yeah. love that. Yeah, that's, and it's a good excuse to buy a bit more clothes when needed. That's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, well, this is segueing very well into my question for you and how you have found balance between the ego and the soul, because you do speak a lot about the ego in your book. But can you share some examples of how you've learned to do this in your life or with your clients? Yeah. So, I am attracted to going deep, right? So if, if I if I learn about something, I, I really like to dig in and, and find it and then live live deep in it. So I think when I when I realize that this tension that we feel inside ourselves is a tension between you know, good and bad inclination, uh, you know, it sounds bad in English, but I love like, yetzer tov, yetzer ra, that we were wired for this internal tension. And by the way, I love the word tension. Um, many people, when they hear the word tension, they're like, oh, I don't want, I don't want tension. It sounds negative, but tension is so positive in the sense that it just really allows you to look at, 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 at what you're going through and wonder about. So what is this tension and what's going on inside me? And can I try to try to control it a bit more? And, and in the book, I talk about my first let's say, you know, my first Yom Kippur in the sense that I came ready for Yom Kippur, not just kind of showing up uh, in shul, but really did preparation for Yom Kippur. And I was thinking about the year that passed and my my behavior. And I said sorry to the people that I wanted to. And I really prepared emotionally, you could say physically. And then when I arrived to shul and I, w- I, was, I was davening and I was in it, only thoughts of jealousy came into my mind because I saw this woman that I've been I've been kind of seeing for years and she was like perfect picture perfect you know and I I was I was asking to myself why am I having these thoughts of jealousy in Yom Kippur like that's my one day of pure holiness and I prepared for this and I got so annoyed with myself but then I realized these bad thoughts these negative, whatever, you know, it's, it's also part of who I am. And so I kind of looked at this jealousy in the eye and said, okay, what, what's happening here? Like, why am I jealous? Like, what is it? What is she triggering? So as you can see, even the use of words that I'm using now with you, trigger and tension, I don't think those are Tanya words. They're my, those are my everyday words, but they're still written in the Tanya, just in a different way. So I'm trying to bring it to life. And, you know, I did. I actually I, like that word tension much more than trigger. I've gotten sick of the word trigger. Tension. <laughs> <laughs> Tension is a really, for me, it's like a, it's like an everyday, not maybe everyday, but many moments uh, word. So why am I saying all of this? That I know that I will grow only through going through all those moments of tension inside. Right. And listen, sometimes I lose. Sometimes I lose. And I lose against myself. In the highest moment of Yom Kippur, you had this low thought, but you grew from this day. And, and you from know having what? that thought. Well, 
on the way back, because it was one of the tefillot, so I think we went back home, and then I said to my husband, he said, why are you looking so worried? And I said, I can't believe what was going through my mind. And bless Yair, he's like, Michal, that's normal. We all have these thoughts. What do you think? Everyone sits and looks around and thinks thoughts. So also to normalize it um, was something that I, you know, also loved about the journey, this tension between the ego and, you know, good and bad, normalizing it. I normalize it for my children. Um, it doesn't mean that, as I said, every time I, 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 I'm not in fully taming my ego state, and thank God for not, for that, because I want to have a long life ahead to go through these challenges. But I know it's there and I know it's a vehicle for growth. And I think that just in you sharing this right now, many people feel like these emotions, when they show up, are bad and they should be you know, squashed and, and pushed away. But, the, but no, feeling the tension is actually helping you learn about yourself. I feel like when you said tension, I was thinking attention, you know, like the tension means that we need to give that attention, give that feeling attention and figure out, you ah. know, well, what's going on that I'm, that I'm feeling this way and that it is normal. And I also think that it was really great that you told your husband your thoughts, like you weren't afraid to, you, you told him your thoughts and that he was able to tell you, hello, that's normal. I do it too. We all do it. You know, I think that that's important to share our thoughts so that we all know, like we're sharing them, you're sharing it here right now. And all our listeners know, okay, these are normal thoughts that we can that we can overcome. So important. I just, I, I actually do think that one of the things we can all improve on, and I know it sounds quite, you know, generalizing kind of comment is to share more what's going through our heads because the moment we say certain things, they just sound less horrible than what it sounds like in our heads. And when I was in a very difficult time in my life and I had very bad thoughts I shared all of them with my husband. And I really think that, that he really in the way, in that way kind of saved me because I said them to them, to him and in his eyes, the reflection was, it's okay. Like it's okay. We, we, we can do this. And, and, and he wasn't scared. And it, when you're so scared, actually to look into someone's eyes, someone you really care about and they care about you. And, and that fear doesn't reflect through their eyes is, is, is very containing and, and um, really important. There's a lot of power in vulnerability and vulnerability takes risk. Even if it's someone very close to you to be able to kind of bear your soul. Um, there's always that, that risk and fear of some level of rejection. Well, what if I just say everything and then what, and then like, you know, I'll be judged or this will happen or that will happen. So it takes a bit of risk, but ultimately on the other side, I think that most people will likely say that it, it was a worthwhile risk to take, you know, and it's, it's much, it feels much lighter on the other side. Um, Even something yeah. small, I mean, it's, it wasn't small for me this morning that I was feeling scattered and, and to be able to say to a friend to either, I, you know, I could put on this wall and be like, yes, I'm great. Everything's cool. And I said to her, I'm feeling so overwhelmed this morning with everything that's going on. And she said, you know what? And she just made me feel better by saying that's normal. I went through that too this morning. And it just makes me feel like, okay, she's going through that too. And we're all in this together. We're all, and you give me this vibe. You're talking between us, the three of us now. We, I never met you, right? I mean, I'm seeing you on Zoom, but just it's the, it's this duty of care, um, this really caring, this looking at the individual. And again, one of the things I love about the experiences that I had with the Lubavitch community is no judgment. Like very early on my journey and still today, I feel that acceptance and I know it doesn't happen all the time and I don't want to make us you know angels because we're not and we're not here to be angels but one of the things that I'm at least trying to do is really be less judgmental a of myself to begin with um and then of the people that I care about and my community and my colleagues and just be less judgmental and more accepting and more kind because no one knows as you said Rivka you never know what this what you're carrying what you're carrying with you, like what happened to you in your life, what you're going through in your heart and soul. I had, I had, when I started my journey with the book, I, I, a couple of people approached me and one of them said, like, convince me, why should I even, you know, why should I give you a platform? You're like, you, you look like everything's doing really well for you. Like, how can you even talk about mental health? But mental health doesn't check, like, you know, who you seem to be on LinkedIn or who you seem to look from the outside, it visits our souls and hearts and everyone, regardless of what it looks like the, you know, the, it's kind of when you unveil and you see what's happening behind the scenes that you know that mental health can visit any of us. Um, and we just need to care about it just a little bit more. 
And it's precisely someone like you who can share that message, that it can visit any of us. It makes no distinction between gender, culture, race. It visits whoever, whenever, and we have to have awareness about it. And, and you know, today actually happens to be, this May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and today is May 31st. You know, it's like, this is the month where we need to talk about it, where we, I've seen a lot more on social media, people being open about it. So how apropos to be talking about this today and speaking of taking risks and mental health and, you know, and trusting and being vulnerable there's, and when I bought your book, um, I actually bought, I bought the Kindle version, but then I started reading it and I said, I have to have the physical version because, um, um, because we've got all these sticky notes in them with all the things so, that, well, cause that's cause we read them. We, I read them on Shabbat. So whenever I read on Shabbat, I have the sticky notes, but in other days I just write it down on my laptop, on my computer. See that? There we go right there. Um, anyway, so on the back cover, which is a very famous Hebrew quote, but I'll translate it in English. The whole world is a very narrow bridge, a very narrow bridge, a very narrow bridge. And the main thing is to have no fear, to have no fear at all. And it's so powerful just to read it. How did you connect to that statement and why, why that one specifically? Mm. For, I have the, I almost could say privilege of, of being brought up in Israel and Hebrew is my mother tongue. So the, the song that regardless of where you are, what you practice, you know, if you, if I think many, many Jewish people have heard the song in Hebrew, um, I heard it in the military as well. It's something that you, we used to sing when we were having, you know, tough trainings and we were like, we can go through this as well. When it gets quite tough uh, and, and, and you kind of want to continue, find that resilience in, inside of you. It's, it's a word that I wasn't familiar with back then. So, you know, just to hear, it just the words goes immediately to, 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 to your soul. Um, and, and one of the things that I really, really fell in love with, and again, I didn't get education on, on Yadut, on Judaism. So a lot of things I'm learning, I'm, I, I didn't know it was in the Torah. I, I'm learning them. And, and one of the things that inspired me most, and, you know, we live in an uncertain world and we want so many assurances and that I'm going to be successful in this job and the marriage is going to be great and the kids are going to be, you know, we all want to kind of, perfect our lives, or I don't want to say all, all I really wanted to, and I'm not going to say that I don't still want a really fantastic life. Um, and many times I think that I was hesitating to do, make a change because I had, I didn't have a reassurance or assurance that something will, you know, that it's going to work out. And then when I discovered this huge moment, I think in Jewish, Jewish history, when, when we escaped Egypt and we were stuck in the middle uh, between you know, the Egyptians kind of chasing us and, and, and the Red Sea and, 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 and we were like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We're so, we're so stuck. Um, and, and that kind of leap of faith for the, for, and, and I think that, you know, the, the people were kind of, I guess, confused between themselves. Like, you know, should we, should we go back? Should we go forward? Should we stand still? Should we sacrifice our lives? And I think that the story of, of specifically Nachshon is, is that, that taking those first steps towards something, not knowing exactly how it's going to turn out, but I think connected to what Rivka was saying, but taking that step, I don't know if it's emuna or bitachon or all those things and finding that thing inside of you to cross that bridge or cross the sea or cross, that gave me a lot of power, which is like if in that huge moment of survival, people took a few people at least took the step forward. It means that also in my life, I can take the step forward and cross a bridge. Um, even though I know it's going to be wobbly and I'm not sure how I'm going to get on the other side. And actually as a coach at work, I often see people knowing that they want to cross the bridge and believing that it's the right bridge for them, but often choosing not to cross it. Um, and, and, and I often, as a, as a coach, I ask them, you know, why aren't you, what is the bridge in, ahead of you and why aren't you crossing it? And I think because we, we think we can be in control of everything, but we can't. So I am, I'm never going to suggest to anyone take unnecessary risk in your life. I'm never going to suggest to anyone to take, you know, just do something that is, doesn't make sense. But if inside of you, you know that this is your bridge and you know, you're going towards something that is where you want to be then how about taking that one first wobbly, you know, but first step towards something or towards that place that you want to go to. And um, I, 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 uh, I really care about this. I mean, oh my gosh, it's so, it's so true. Like a leap of faith, 
you know, like taking a leap of faith. Speaking of your clients and you being a coach and a leader, and what we found so fascinating is that just a few years ago, you didn't know about all these teachings and most of it is new to you. And you mentioned in your book that you are not an expert and you just said it here as well in, 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 um, in Jewish thought, yet you already seem to understand concepts of Hasidus so deeply which to us is inspiring. And we've grown up Chabad girls. We've learned so much from what you share here and what you've shared in your book um, and look to apply it in our lives as well. And even though you have not met the Lubavitcher Rebbe, um, aided leaders, you being, you being one of them, um, and, and he expressed how each individual can make a difference and has the capacity to lead in their own way and this is what you are doing. Having said this, as a as a leadership coach, did learning Hasidus change your perspective on what it means to be a leader? I think one of the things I love most about the Rebbe's teachings is what you said, that everyone, everyone has a potential, the potential to lead in their own way. And I just love how it all connects so beautifully that once you find your purpose, and I don't think there's a one big capital P purpose. I get, I guess, you know, serving Hashem is what, you know, the, the big one, but, but I got on the day to day, you know, at some point of my life, my purpose was to be a leader of my family. And hopefully that will continue to be. And another part of my life, my purpose was to be a leader in learning a subject and, and maybe teaching others. But, but that the idea that you can always lead or a leader in kind of voluntary work. So I love the concept of it. it gives so much confidence to every boy and girl that they were here. They arrived here to lead on something. And it could be just being a really active community member. I mean, I have I have I have girlfriends here who are community members. They, they lead in the community. They lead. They, they get us together. They 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 um, they guide us. And that's a huge leadership role. Does it say leader on their name? Probably not. Are they leading our community? A hundred percent. So I, I absolutely love that. If it helped me, I'm sure it helped me because it helped me do, it helped me find confidence in myself. It helped me find my voice. And I think a leader has to have their voice. They need to be clear about who they are and what they're here to do. And also because I am also, you could say an academic I think through the Rebbe, I also look, learned about Viktor Frankl. I, I followed the things that the you know the teachings that the Rebbe uh, uh, ha, has been kind of sharing, and and at some point I, I came across Viktor Frankl, and it just all connected. How I think without the Rebbe, Viktor Frankl wouldn't publish *Man's Search for Meaning*. Logotherapy wouldn't be such a known therapy. And by the way, now there's a huge kind of um, uh, re-celebration of logotherapy. Because in this world of today, we realize that what people really need is meaning. And, and Viktor Frankl saw that even before his days in, in the camps in Auschwitz. And the Rebbe saw that in Viktor Frankl before Viktor Frankl was the... Fi- yes. Okay. So now yes. it's showing me the book, Man's Search for Meaning on Zoom. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, one of, it's one of our favorites. As a leader, you want to be clear about you know who you are and, and what you stand for. At the same time, to leave some room for possibility that you know maybe you don't always will have the answers and when you said Viktor Frankl I actually heard an incredible story I'll briefly share it about Viktor Frankl where he actually wanted to give up on his scientific work because there were so many academics who were against what he was doing because he represented a total departure from commonly um, accepted uh, theories and actually um, the Rebbe sent an emissary to knock on his door and tell him to continue in his work. I mean, I'll, I could send you the kind of longer transcript of the story, but you know, even he had these moments of, am I fit to be a leader? Maybe I'm not. And I think that's something we found in so many of the leaders that we've interviewed, including Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi Jacobson, all of these people who were fit to be leaders, but there was a self-doubt. And I think the key is in knowing, like, why am I here? Am I running towards something or away from something? And so, and, and this leads me to one thing you said in your book that really stuck with me. And I think it's a question that I love to ask myself and to ask the people around me when, they're, when they struggle, because I also, you know, I, I'm a coach as well. And the question really is, in your struggle, whatever choice you're trying to make, are you moving towards something? or away from something? Are you avoiding it or are you going toward it? Do you ask people who um, kind of have a struggle, they're looking to find the answers or about moving toward, moving away from? Mm. 
I can share from my own experience. And of course, just, you know, as a reminder, it's, I think it's the, I'm speaking here as a coach, right? So like a fellow coach to you, I'm not a, you know, counselor. And I think there's, you know, life is, uh, life, is com- life is complex and complicated. And so- sometimes in life, we actually do need to move away from either a person or a situation that is very unhealthy for us. And I think that is definitely a moving away from, but it's the right moving away, but that's not my area. But I just want to say, you know, it's really important for everyone and women included to know if you're living in a situation that is not a good one for you for, for, for deep, meaningful reasons, uh, um, then, then, then moving away is, is probably a good thing when you get the right support. Um, but you know, it's a big question, you know, it's like, how do you know if you're avoiding something? Because often if you avoid something, it's going to come and revisit you, right? It's going to, if, if we're, if we're trying to get rid of a uncomfortable situation or a feeling or something that we see in us through moving away from a situation, there is a chance that it's going to happen again to us with a different boyfriend or with a different workplace, right? So I think really here it's about, um, I do remember a story of the Rebbe, uh, one one of the people that came for his advice kind of wanted the Rebbe to solve the problem for them. And the Rebbe said, look inside yourself. I'm not quoting the words, but like, look into, you know, ask yourself that question. So I think very often in life, if we're very honest with ourselves, uh, which is very hard thing to do, it's really hard to be honest with ourselves. This is, it sounds easy, but it's so not. But if we're honest with ourselves and we ask ourselves, have I done as much as I can, am I, am I conscious of my ego here? Am I looking at this from different perspectives? Am I zooming in out? If you know that you've tried everything and really the situation or, or the person or the place is not ready for you or good for you. So you probably need to go towards something, you know, different. Um, but it's, it's, I don't even know if it's helpful what I'm sharing with you because it's so much deep work. And sometimes you have to, Ask that person that you trust, listen, these are the thoughts that are going through my mind. How does it sound to you? Does it sound like I'm avoiding? Be a good friend. Tell me, am I avoiding something? Or am I just fearful of going to that next place, which is where I need to go towards something? That's why I so believe in the power of friendships. Not yes, I'm like nodding my head vigorously because that, that's you know, the thing. You know that's what I found? Yeah. You know, you're talking about friendships and also when I really felt, you know, that you are a leader is reading your chapter on making space for others. Like, because your book is a self-help book and often we end up focusing on the I and the me when we're doing self-help, but your self-help book is really about also making space for others. And that's where friendships come in and, and where your clients and businesses, you know, you coach people to be leaders and that I felt was a big part of it is, you know, this concept of making space for others, which is a deeper concept in Tanya called Simpson, like you shared. But um, we both really appreciated how you, how you shared these thoughts and that you were also able to be vulnerable in your book. And we realized how important vulnerability is. And like we had shared earlier, when we share experiences and the impact it can have on others and making a positive difference in their lives, did, did it come naturally to you? Or we were, we were curious if it came naturally to you or were you stepping out of your comfort zone and sharing your story with the world? Of course, out of comfort zone. And <laughs> I, I mean, I'm also comfort zone in our call now. I guess I just want to make like, I <laughs> don't want to make this too, you know, like, you know, I'm sweating now, right? I'm, I'm, <laughs> this is this is not very comfortable right i'm i'm opening up really i'm being dead serious i'm i'm opening up i'm sharing things that i've done and i'm sharing my faults and i'm sharing that i will continue having these maybe no you know faults but i'm you know i'm i'm just opening up but the reason i'm doing this is because when i was needing to see people to I often didn't see actually women when I was really seeking for content, for inspiration early on in my journey. A lot of the things that were in writing were, and maybe I wasn't looking in the right places, but were were by rabbis. And of course, huge respect to them. But I wanted to see someone that I could relate to in all sorts of ways and a being a woman and being a mother. Um, And so it doesn't feel comfortable and I do feel vulnerable. And, you know, when I published, when I sent the book to print and it was like that last moment when I like click that enter I was like what have I just done like I 
I just opened myself to anyone that will choose to read the book. Like, what have I done? But I know that there's a mission behind the book. And Ida, you said before about, you know, every day I wake up and I'm like, I'm not sure how I'm going to do this. But I love also the idea in Hasidut. Every moment is an opportunity to get something right. And if I missed it and I failed, the next moment is a new opportunity to do it right. Again, there is yeah. so many endless opportunities. And I grew up in a house when I felt I had to be perfect all the time. And if I did something wrong, it was a disaster. And it's okay. I had these conversations with my parents and we've digested all of that. They did the best. Yeah. They and, I, and you know what? Yes. Like when you say they did the best they can. And I just want you to know something, Ida and I both noticed reading your book that you were vulnerable and respectful at the same time. Like you were vulnerable about your parents' flaws or the things that you went through with them. But I also respected them in the book because that, that shined through as well. And I really respect the combination of you, you being vulnerable yet respectful. And that's a huge compliment for me. Huge. Because I have to say, when it comes to sharing my own stuff that I did, it's only me, right? I only have to deal with myself. Yeah. But when it has to do with my parents that gave me life, that did everything they could And yeah, did they make mistakes? Of course. Am I making mistakes as a mother? Of course. So I was, I, I, I respect my parents. And even now learning even more about Kibudorim. And I, I, I was supposed to be born to this family. I had a role to play as the, my parents' daughter. I have a role to play as my sister's sibling. I, all of this is a role. It just gives you so much more sense of, you know, meaning of, My parents needed me to go through this. They needed to be that daughter of theirs. So I, I, I am vulnerable. I hope I'll, have, uh, I'll be able to continue to be vulnerable, but in a meaningful way, because all of this is only done for other people that are going through daily struggle to be able to consider this wisdom, our wisdom, Hasidut, Lubavitcher teaching to, to, to help themselves go and navigate through life challenges. Thank you for sharing that. Yes. You guys should definitely get the book to read about Michal's family life that she, and her childhood and how she's grown from that. It's on the subject of your parents and your family, you decided to have another baby recently at 41. You have three beautiful children and you actually brought your mother to the birth as well because of all the growing and the learning that you have done and that your mother had done. You wanted to bring her to, to this new opportunity and this new life that you're bringing into the world. But can you talk about this decision you made to have another child in your 40s and what guided your decision to want to have another child? Mm. That's a very powerful question. It was a very powerful moment. So, you know, I am blessed with Boch Hashem for, for children now. And as you said, at the age of 41, um, and, and then by the way, I always thought I wanted, you know, two children and I'd never thought about, you know, growing a bigger family. But since I discovered... I guess kind of Yiddishkeit, this, this, this sparkle, there's something in my, also my marriage life was, was um, growing. And I raised my three children, my older children, as, a, as that different, I guess, version of myself. I'm still the same person, but I, I wouldn't say I raised them in their early years with huge amount of, um, it sounds extreme, but joy. It was more the anxiety and the worry and, checking a million times if they're breathing and not that I don't check the baby, but you know, it was, it was that heavy, heavy lift of, of parenting. And, and when I realized that I'm not in full control, not in my life of my life and not of anything, I had this urge inside of me to bring, please God, if God is with me, a new life, a new neshama, and maybe being able to raise her, um, In a, just even the early days with, with massive smile and, and more simcha, I, I think I wanted that correction for myself. Maybe it sounds selfish, but I, I wanted to try. And, uh, and I thought, you know, what are the chances? I was almost 42. I mean, let, listen, and, um, and yeah, like uh, I wasn't the only one wanting this. So it was a beautiful experience. And, and I also felt it was like a wonderful way to celebrate. And, and you mentioned with my mother, because my mother and I have been, like a lot of mothers and daughters on a journey. We had years of tension. We had years of, you know, respecting, but um, 
things weren't said and then things were said and then there was regret of things were said and then there was guilt and all of that 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 mothers and daughters could have when i reached that place when my mother fell in love with my own journey and and i saw how proud she was of this woman that just came from nowhere her daughter i wanted her to be with me in the delivery room and she was never with me in any of the other babies and um she was there and it was one of the greatest moments of my life my daughter was born my mother cut the umbilical cord and it was just it was a moment that i just take for me with me forever do you know what it's making me so emotional listening to this also because you just said that you felt that your mother was proud of you and that's what made you want to bring her to the delivery room and i think that that's something that we need to all think about also when our children feel that we are proud of them just for who they are that makes them want to be with us too and the fact that you you and your mother were able to get to that place and that now you're you parent from the soul it's in your book as well is just really this is just beautiful to hear and the learnings you can make as a mother regardless of how old you are it doesn't matter that my mother is 70 she feels like this journey that her and i have been on to she she's she's parenting me in a new way she's 70 she is still my mother right really, that never ends never ends and i look into her eyes for reassurance ima ima is this like you know and and um and it was it's truly powerful and going back to bitachon rifka what i realized is that you know you mentioned bitachon that really i think what our children need is bitachon from us and i think as a child i didn't get bitachon and i was lost i didn't feel that regardless of mash, whatever happens i'm safe and i think that i don't know what the word in english is bitachon i guess it's security is safety i don't know if there's like a proper translation but really i realized that as a parent and as a child today to my parents what i want from them is bitachon um and and that was another discovery i think this gives a lot of people hope in their relationships even if there's been years of um strife or rift that it doesn't matter what age it is a bond is a bond and you can rekindle that and you can learn and you can grow in your relationship because we always want that connection with our parents and yeah. our children but you yeah and, and as we grow we redefine our relationships exactly and as we grow we need to learn to let go and i think you said that even before right let go i decided to let go of certain memories and experiences they weren't helping me i revisited them i knew them we can't change them now um of course some memories are so horrible because harmful things had happened and no one should let go of anything that was to that extreme but i think what i taught myself is that if i can let go of something probably better to let go of it and and bring and make space to something more positive as you say kind of rekindle it and um and in that moment in the delivery room when my fourth baby was born and my mother was crying i don't think i saw my mother crying before um it was very special wow that's really beautiful that she that you and her had the opportunity both to experience that both of you that's from um, your work and from her work all yeah we yeah we both worked <laughs> Okay so I wanted I wanted to pivot now talk about the title of your book. So you called your book what would you do if you weren't afraid and you mentioned that you know in your first day at Facebook you you know you stood there and you saw this this uh this quote or the sign that said what would you do if you weren't afraid. So to that title it was something that you saw I'm, I'm sure it was very meaningful. If you were to ask yourself you know the question having done all this work right today is what would you Michal Oshman do if you weren't afraid um what would your answer be i think it's it's a very powerful question as you said and and one that i ask myself often i think i think even being in this moment with you now uh is a little bit of a what would i do if i weren't if i wasn't afraid it's recorded what if i say something wrong right. what if my grammar is bad in english what if i say something disrespectful about my husband what if i come out as like not sensitive what you know all of these things are so tempting to actually ping you 10 minutes before and say uh i'm not ready for this but i'm doing the sleep of faith and i'm throwing myself you know out there and At, at my first day at facebook when i saw the sign what would you do if you weren't afraid side by side to that sign just, 
just on the other side of that sign was another sign that said, fail harder. And, you know, for a perfectionist to see the message fail harder, like, no, I don't want to fail. But they, these two go together because what does fail harder mean uh, for, for everyday life? And I, I know it's, a, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to accept, but I, I do believe that if we're all into living life meaningfully, if we're all here to try to fulfill what we're here to do without taking unnecessary risks, but sometimes, as we said, we have to take that risk, even within ourselves, to be a bit more vulnerable, to reach out, to, to show that soul that we have inside, inside. Sometimes we will, because we're trying hard, we will fail. And sometimes we'll fail harder because it's that failing when you feel it inside of you and you have that hot feeling in your body, like, why did I do it? But without trying and without failing, there is no growth. So even now, I really hope that this podcast will be done in a, you know, I, I spoke, I made sense and it's going to be okay. But if not, and I really think it will be okay, but if not, I might fail harder and I'm going to listen to the podcast and I'm going to learn from things that I said that were good and not good. And then I'll have another podcast. So I love this idea of what's the worst that can happen. So every time I stand in front of the bridge, I say, what's the worst that can happen? If I'll come out not amazing, fine, I can do that. If I'm going to be embarrassing myself a little bit, no problem. I don't mind embarrassing myself. If there's other more serious things that have to do with my other things, then I'll take a minute. But that's the question. Like, what would I do if I wasn't afraid? If it's about ego things, I should probably take this step forward. If it's about not being always right or winning a little argument with my husband. But if it's bigger things, then to take a moment. So this is how I'm, how I'm wired in my brain around what would you do if you weren't afraid? Wow. I love that answer. I, love I, I can't remember the quote right now, but J.K. Rowling, the author of Harry Potter, has a quote about how, um, you know, it's better to trial and try and fail because if you don't try then you failed by default yeah, yeah you've you, got to you step miss, onto the narrow bridge of course you miss a hundred percent of the shots that you never threw right uh, when i was yeah. when i was single and i know i come from a you know i came from a more secular world like like when when people showed you know young men showed interest and i was thinking about dating i was like like I'll date 10 guys like one of them this just increases your chances of growing that's right like, Gotta tell that to all the girls that have been listening. Date, date, <laughs> date, date. date. <laughs> You're not, you know, give it a chance. I really believe in that. Yeah, this is this is a great way to conclude uh interview with you, even though we feel like we could go on and on. But before we do conclude, we want you to finish a few little sentences for us to complete them. Ida, do you want to start? Sure. It, okay, the greatest compliment I received was. Very recently, when my son decided to speak of me at school and told all of his friends that they have to read the book for their well-being and happiness. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. That, that is great. the ultimate. <laughs> when your son's proud of what you're doing. That's great. Said, I would not be here today if it wasn't for. So I'm, listen, it's my husband. Okay, I just want to say I'm blessed. <laughs> I I also invest a lot um, in those moments of self-doubt when I'm not like I am in front of you now, when I'm like the raw version of me, who do I think I am to write a book? Who do I think I am to apply to this job? Who do He's the one that says, well, you are the one. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it is him. He believes in you that. more I can, than I can you re- believe in yourself. Absolutely. Always. I mean, yeah, yeah. he does. He does. We always need that. We need that person who believes in us more than we believe in ourselves. And you're lucky it's your husband. Yeah, I know I'm lucky, yeah. but it could be a sister, a mother, that person yeah. that see in you that thing that you just can't see in yourself. Well, I'm proud to say that I can relate to you on that one. So, And you know yeah. what? I want to tell you that I can relate to you too. So I'm glad that we all relate. But we've had a lot of very, very, and please God, never happen again, but could very, very low moments. When we were looking in each, and I also write about this in the book, when we had scary moments within our own relationship. And I, again, keeping things real. And marriage takes work to get to that place where you both believe in each other and that you can share that. It, it takes effort every day. And, and, and awareness. And I had to make a lot of changes in how I behaved and he did as well and will continue to. But you know what? It is really nice, like with the child, not that I'm comparing, that you do see the fruit of, of this investment and, and, uh, 
I'm all I'm I'm all into getting old now. I love aging. I feel like I feel like trending to you know. <laughs> my mom says she only started really living at sixty, so I'm so hopeful that I'm even maybe going to feel a little bit more comfortable in my skin and in my marriage in in fifteen years. Yes. Sorry, I'm pivoting. There's something very special about aging when when you're growing and you're working on yourself at the same time internally. And I think that you even saying that you went through a difficult time with your husband and there have been many lows can give a lot of people hope who don't feel the way you feel right now that maybe with a little bit of work and finding something new, maybe even reading your book and um, learning some Hasidus and finding, finding growth or meaning in the relationship in that way because it did seem from your book that you had a lot of difficult times with your family, but with through learning Hasidus is where you found the light and you found growth and you found love. So I hope that this gives people who are listening who don't feel that way hope for their lives as the, as we age, as we age, that age aging is a good thing, can be a good thing. Absolutely. True freedom is achieved when? I don't know the answer. I'm still fingering out. Do, do you ever feel free? Like when have you felt free? I don't think I'm at that level yet. I think I have small mini moments of freedom. Literally, I think it's a second or two. Um, sometimes it's just a word um, that just goes immediately in. I don't think I'm living in a completely free way I have a I have a way to go well we're all works in progress so that yeah. makes sense you know we're all working towards more freedom and you know whatever that looks like for for me or for Rifko or for you I appreciate and may the you honesty feel, and the answer yeah we appreciate the honesty and I hope that the next time we interview you you're able to share some experiences of how you feel free more than just a few moments <laughs> God. okay um okay my definition of success is so that I changed my definition of success. Uh, many years it was what it says on my LinkedIn. What does my face look like? What does my, I don't know, like the more external things. Uh, again, I'm not throwing them away completely. They do matter. But I think for me, success is, uh, I define it. So it's not defined by anyone else. It's more internal. And it's about taking that leap of faith, as you said, Ida, like, am I taking leaps of faith? Um, am I letting go? Am I letting go of the right things? And how am I doing on taming my ego? <laughs> you know, I, I do feel like a winner when, uh, and I write about it in the book, I sometimes get angry. I know you're, one shouldn't get angry because it's Yetzirara, but I can't get angry with my kids. Um, and when I, when I pivot that feeling or when I stop it or when I wonder about it and I completely want to go and say a, whatever words to come out of my mouth and then another set of words come out of my mouth, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm winning today in such a big way. So um, that's my uh, version of success where I am at life at the moment. It's, it's self-defined and that's so important. Everyone has to define their own and not on someone else's barometer. Uh, that's where things can get really tricky and difficult. Um, so we normally have a favorite, we, we ask you to share a favorite quote. You did share a few, but is there any other quote that might come to mind, a quote that you like, that you resonate with, that, you, that you'd like to share? Yeah, I think there's so many, as you said, but one that I really love is, is from the Kotzker Rebbe, and it, and it is the, you know, the, the, the notion that is not, there's nothing more complete than a broken heart. And for someone that wanted to be intact, one perfect being, um, knowing that actually it's the breaking inside us, it's the down moments that we had in our relationships or even in our marriage or even when things really broke, um, and I had my heart breaking. And unfortunately, when your heart breaks, it's no reassurance that it doesn't happen again. And I wish it was, but it isn't. And we can't control any breakings, things that happen from the outside world or our in internal world. But just knowing that that breaking allows the growth, even if it's tough and there's tension and no one wants tough moments. But that breaking really eventually defines who we are, by the way, also as a nation, I, I, get, I get a lot of strength from that on individual level, on a community level, on a nation level, and that, uh, and that you know, it's, it's a way to grow. So um, it's a really favorite quote. Rivka, that reminds me of, um, Rivka has often said, 
it's in the cracks where the light gets in. Is that, is that what, is that how it's said? I feel like you say that a lot. It's a, it's, it's from, yes, it's from a Leonard Cohen song. There's a crack in everything. Oh, That's where the light gets in. Love it. There we go. <laughs> That's it. We mentioned it. It's very appropriate. We want to wish that there is peace in Israel and that um, everyone who needs healing should have healing and that we are able to walk freely in the streets and enjoy our land and that I'm sure you have family there that they should be safe. And so it is appropriate and we feel very um, honored and blessed to be interviewing a powerful, successful woman who also fought for our country and was in the army. So thank you. And was a, a commander as well to other soldiers. <laughs> thank you. It's very kind of you. It was many, many years ago, but yes. <laughs> You've led other soldiers and they've led other soldiers and they're standing and fighting for us today. Appreciate it. I appreciate this conversation. I, I know I really hope it's going to go into people's hearts. I really spoke from deep inside. I, I feel that these are the, the conversations that are so important. This is why Rifka and I are, this is why we do what we do, because we believe in the power of real conversations. This is our mission. So listen, you bring such good vibe and such a good energy and like a sisterhood and like a, you're really good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot. That means a lot hearing that from you. Um, and we've seen the ripple effect and we've seen the, the difference that it could make. And I think that, um, you know, today you played a significant role in positive change. So we, we appreciate it so much. We both admire you and and thank you. Really, to Daraba. Oh. 